Hello and welcome to another episode of the Retro Football Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Alistair Bain, and I'm joined by the ever-wonderful Mr. Stuart Flaherty. Stuart, how's it going, mate? That's a lovely introduction, Alistair. Thank you, mate. <laughs> so, the second round of Euro 96, Stuart, we are right into the meat and bones of the tournament. Uh, this, for me, Stuart, I don't know about you, but this is the... the, the really interesting part of the tournament because obviously it's the the point where you've got the most stakes obviously the most has happened now we're really starting to get the nitty gritty of what teams need to do in order to progress before we get into the uh, you know nuts and bolts of this round Stu what was your your take on it overall very very interesting round some things you expected uh some things you very much didn't expect you know in these three game round robins I always enjoy the second round because it really just tease up the last round of games and yeah the the opening game there's a certain nerve to some teams but the se- the second round really starts to the story starts to tell itself of a tournament completely agree mate i mean this is one for me as well where you're talking about narrative now you're also talking as well about player performances you know has someone started well and maybe starting to taper off and vice versa has someone not had a, a good game in the first round and can they maybe rectify it and I'm sure once we go through this, there'll be certainly a few members in that camp. Um, so before we get to the games then, Stu, just wanted to, obviously, for the listeners, we have a, an interview coming at the, the end of today's episode that you, you conducted yourself. Um, it's with the Swiss centre-back and what would be the Tottenham, or what would become, rather, the Tottenham centre-back. He'd gone and win a League Cup with them, and he'd win a treble with Celtic, obviously, before moving on to to walk from the Premier League and that's a certain Mr. Ramon Vega um, Stewie how did you enjoy the interview? Um, fascinating a lot of insight you know it was interesting to talk to him about the tournament um, it was really enjoyable and nice to hear the passion he spoke with about the tournament about how he felt about playing at Wembley and you know how he felt about it's coming home um, and his memories of the tournament were really positive and on a football level some really interesting insights through the eyes of the Swiss team, you know, in terms of how they reacted to the pre-tournament media blow-up of the English dentist chair, um, what it was like to Mark Alan Shearer, uh, the differences between the English 4-4-2 we faced and the uh, the Dutch diamond 3-4-3. And uh, in that last game when Scotland had played their first two games in a 4-4-2, and then come out in a three-five-two unexpectedly to sw- unexpectedly against Switzerland. He talks a little bit about that, and uh, real good insight. You know, I think it, even from the coaching perspective, it was educational for me to listen to him talk in such detail about these things. Awesome. Well, like we said, folks, that'll be coming at the end of today's interview. But before we get into that. Let's take a quick look at the group sections. Uh, We'll take a look at how the teams fared and then how that puts them going into round number three. So let's start off with Group D then, Stewie. We've got the first match in Group D is Portugal-Turkey. It would finish in a 1-0 win for Turkey. I think what was interesting for me in this one, Stu, wasn't so much the the scoreline, was the missed chances in this. Portugal were... Absolutely magnificent again going forward, but you know that scourge of not being able to put the the important chances away. Uh, it would seem they've done okay to get the one nil win, but certainly this probably could have been more, right? Yeah, they were ve- they were very very impressive. Uh, Rui Costa again, Luis Figo again, 
shown themselves to be two of the better players at the tournament. And, uh, you know, Fernando Couto is a name we all know. And when you look back after the first game, I wasn't overly impressed with him. He didn't have a bad game. I just don't know if he lived up to uh, to his billing, in, in my mind at least. But in this game, he was fantastic. He was very strong defensively. He scores a good winning goal. Um, you know, a 20-yard half volley from a centre-back is certainly impressive and late in the game when Turkey are going direct and trying to pump balls in the box to get back in the game, he, he was coming up big time and again, so he was probably the best player on the field for me. Turkey altered their shape a little bit in this match Stuart went with two natural strikers rather than the, the number 10 behind Sakur that did in the first match, I think Sifat was the other forward's name didn't really have a major impact on the game in terms of uh, you know chance creation certainly in, in uh, XG didn't really cause a major uptick but maybe a little bit of change of style here a bit more direct at least they got themselves in the box a bit more and began to challenge a bit right yeah they certainly were more of an attacking threat um in this than their, their first game but you know I, they're just a disappointing team so far in the tournament you know the, the left wing back Abdullah Erkan is playing well for Turkey um Honestly, that's about it. You know, like you think of the career, uh, I think it's a 50-plus goal career of Hakan and Sukur for Turkey and some of the success he had at the club level and it, it really does not show through with this tournament. So the next match then, Stu, would be a very, very interesting one and certainly would create a lot of narrative within this group and it was a 3-0 victory for Croatia over Denmark. On a surface level, Stu, this would look like a bit of a pasting, but that certainly uh, certainly wasn't the case, was it? No, it was a good game. Uh, Denmark are a good team. I will say, at, as the second half progressed, the field did start to tilt and it did start to look a bit one-sided. And there was a point where every time Croatia went forward on the counter, you thought they were going to score. And... Uh, you know, Davos Sucre in this game was was unreal. You know, first he tries to beat Schmeichel by by near the halfway line and gets a thumbs up from Schmeichel himself over it. And then, you know, not that long after, he's you know, launching a chip over Schmeichel that we, we, we still see replayed today. Yeah. So that, that was all a, a bit special to watch. Well, the interesting one in this for me was was the expected goals. So Croatia would have a record rather a two point six eight expected goals, whereas Denmark would create two expected goals. So obviously Croatia, you know, on par with what they've created, and Denmark obviously massively below par. The interesting one for me, Stu, was that Denmark at ten shots would only record two on target. There's a number of chances in and around the box that simply they just didn't put away. That again, another day, it, you know, for sure it changes the course of the game. But I think you're right. In the second half, Croatia really took the chances that were presented to them, and I think we're just starting to see the class now of a, a Sukar and a Prozinetsky, certainly a Boban as well, grabbing himself a goal, and maybe even a, a Sanovic in midfield. You're, you're starting to really see how good these players are now, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, the the chip by Suker is set up by a 40, 50-yard pass from Asanovic, which just about lands on his shoelaces. Right. Unbelievable touch. Great finish as well, right? Um, okay, so let's put a bow on, on Group D then, Stu. This obviously puts both Portugal and Croatia in a strong position going into the third game. Turkey, I would imagine, are obviously now completely out of the running. 
Uh, what about Denmark? What would they need in the last game to to keep them in with a shout? Yeah, Croatia were leading the group at this point with six points, so they were through. They were just playing for first or second place, uh, which would be pretty significant with you know eventual winners Germany in the corresponding group. Mm-hmm. Um, and Denmark had one point and needed Portugal to lose um, to get up to four if they won with a tiebreaker separating the two. So. Sure. Underdogs. Interesting for sure then going at round three. One more thing, they would with this three nil scoreline, they'd need a pretty decent goal differential swing as well. Right. Let's skip Group C a second, Stu. We'll, we'll come back to that one because I think that's some huge talking points in that one and go to Group B. Um, the big one in this round was obviously France, Spain, the two... I don't know, favourites is the right word, but you know, maybe the sort of the names, if you like, that pop off a screen, maybe the, the, the two biggest names. This certainly wasn't a match of the ages in terms of chance creation. Two very um, solid defensive teams that looked to counter-attack and break forward, but it was um, it was a, a game that would finish 1-1. Yuri Jorka, for me, really, again, a, a standout performer for France and Spain altering things a little bit, obviously with the red card in the, in the first game there, but like I said, Stu, not a, not a match for the ages for for the purists, but certainly a good match. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm at this point, I'm really starting to enjoy France. You know, like I, they win the World Cup two years later with a couple of players' additions, but I mean, it's starting to show through in this tournament how good they are. That centre back pairing of Desai and Laurent Blanc, Lisa Rizou comes in to start this game, who's excellent. Zidane Deschamps in centre mid, um, Dugarry. As centre forward, you know, there's an argument he's never going to win you a tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, but either side of him, uh, Yuri Jokaev and Christian Karimba uh, were excellent. And France were interchanging centre forwards, actually. Um, they brought Loco in for this game before Sub and Dugary on. And mm-hmm. um, I thought they looked a bit better with Loco. He was a bit more mobile, he was a bit more dangerous. And I thought he offered a little bit more. But I do see the aerial presence and the hold up play. Of Dugary and he has scored the goal in the opener, but uh, you know Spain get a late equaliser from Caminero. I think by now is comfortably their best player after the second game. Um, but France, I think, look a real strong contender at this point. You're right about the centre back pair. I know we'd put out a couple of clips on our our Twitter handle there, uh, showing you know just basic defensive clearances, but. We're talking 15 or 20 <laughs> in a match, right? It's headed clearances, it's blocks. I mean, Blanc and Desai, you know, why wouldn't you play on that, right? If that's a, a strong part of your game, just be good at defending and use that to your yeah. advantage going forward. Um, yeah, what an interesting take on this, or see what your take is on this one, Stu. Neither team played with genuine width in this game. It was more the fullbacks getting forward for me that, that provided some of the support. Is this maybe a precursor to what we're seeing in, in modern football now, that more teams are playing with a sort of inside forward and certainly two behind a striker rather than, you know, traditional wide men get the ball out and get it in the middle? Was that maybe one of the reasons why this was a, a low attacking match, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you got to... I mean, this is just my opinion on it, but you got to respect your opponent a bit. You know, if you're playing against Cafu or Danny Alves or somebody like that, then you got to expect your winger to be respecting that and be wide and be ready to track runs. But um, when you're playing a team where the centre-backs, sorry, the full-backs don't get forward as much, 
I think your wingers have a lot more license. You know, they can stay high and wide. They can make runs inside to try and get on the centre-back shoulder or in behind. They can come check in as a second number 10. They can come deep. And I think these France guys um, had license to, you know, come into centre-mid, switch wings, do all these movements that made themselves very difficult to pick up. And I think when you look at Christian Karimber and Yuri Jokaev, I think that suits their game a lot more than playing like Killian Mbappe and just trying to find the stretch in behind every time. So I, I think it's Jack A doing a doing a good job of taking his personnel and using a system that gets the best out of his best players. So with this game ended in a, a draw, Stewie, it would finish one one. It really put the, the ball on the court now of Bulgaria to try and build on obviously the point they'd picked up in the opening match and get themselves a win and, and that's what they do in this one. It was Bulgaria-Romania and it would finish 1-0 to the Bulgarians. What did you think about this match? Oh, well, it lived up to the billing, didn't it? It was supposed to be Stoichkov v Hadji, two superstars, two historic you know, icons almost of the sport, and they, they lived up to it. Right. I thought Hadji played well for Romania, I thought Stoichkov played well for Bulgaria, and fittingly Stoichkov gets the... Uh, Gets the first goal, and it's a very modern goal, if you will. You know, people talk a lot about wingers coming inside to get into pockets of space and half spaces and open up on the turn and break lines where the pass is. And if you watch the goal, Balakov gets the ball, rolls a pass to him, breaks two lines, Stoichkov's in off his wing, mm-hmm. turns up field, drives at them and scores the, you know, it's, it's only the third minute, but it ends up being the, uh, the decisive goal. You know, with them getting the red card in the first match, they'd altered their shape and how I saw this, I'm interested to get your take on it, it was more of a almost like a Holland setup. It was a, a 3-4-3 diamond of sorts or a 3-5-2 in certain phases. Do you think that goal though coming so early uh, altered their strategy in that they thought, okay, let's let Romania have the ball a bit more and, and maybe play in the counter because we've got something to protect? Not that I noticed. Not that it didn't happen, sure. but not something that was in my mind as I'm going through the game watching. Well, and the reason I bring it up is that Romania, you know, if you look at their stats, right, they had a slightly higher XG. They would have won 23 to Bulgaria's 104, but again, it's the, it's the on-target attacks, right? An XG that I always tend to look at in Romania's is only 0.2, so there's almost an entire expected goal there they're not even hitting the target with, so... Well, the the Romania's build-up play was good. I I just think they weren't as as clinical in the box as as perhaps the players and their ability would suggest. Whereas Bulgaria had would have less attacks, but were more potent from them. You know, um, yeah. So it's just that quality in the final third. Both teams have got outstanding footballers. I just think it's that strategy piece now, and and what we're starting to see in these games is, I I really haven't saw anyone. Maybe with the exception of the Czech Republic, which we'll go on to, who have just camped it in. There's a there's a different style of defender in this, and it's maybe a bit more man for man. But to your point about finding Stoichkov between the lines, they're still they're still uh, looking to progress the ball. It's not just counter attacks, bang it long and chase it. You know, both teams are are continuing to have a go. What do you what do you think about that? I think that's right, but I do think one thing worthy of mention, and you don't think of pace when you think of Stoichkov, but he can move at this point. Right. And um, you notice that now and again they will play behind and they will have him stretching behind. Mm-hmm. And I think without that, uh, he's not as effective because if you want to be a left winger who comes deep and comes central to get the ball, 
that's fine. But if every time you get the ball, you're in the same position and be in front of the defenders, eventually the defense gets more aggressive and they push up and there's a real small gap for you to go into between the uh, defenders and the first line of midfielders. But if you show even occasionally that if they cheat too high, if that fullback's too aggressive, you're still capable of burning them by putting the ball in behind and turning them and going to byline, then the fact that they have to respect that gives you that space to check in too. Sure. No, especially on Stoichkov's side, right, with Petrescu flying down the wing and then having to charge all the way back and track a man for yeah. sure. Um Okay, so Bulgaria getting the victory there then and France drawing. This is sort of in France and Spain drawing. This puts this group in a real balancing act, right? Going into match number three? Yeah, yeah. So France and Bulgaria are on four points and Spain are on two. But Spain's last game is going to be against Romania, who've got no points. So if Spain win that, they go to five. Spain get to five and one of France and Bulgaria lose. Uh, they're out. Right. If Spain get to five and France and Bulgaria draw, then you've got a three-way tiebreaker. So, yeah, like right on a knife edge, whereas Spain is third place with only two points, they have theoretically the easiest game mm-hmm. and getting themselves up to five and the other game's on, an, on a knife edge, you know? Number three in the world, Spain. <laughs> At this point, it still, still blows my mind to think they'll rank so highly uh, going at this tournament, but... What are you going to do? Okay, so let's move in then to groups. You sound upset they ranked above Scotland, <laughs> Just marginally. Just, just marginally. Slightly more goals, I think. Um, so Group C then. This is, yeah, this is chock full of narrative. This is chock full of what-if moments. And certainly in terms of Arrigo Saki's Italian career. Would have uh, would have massive implications. Let's do Germany Russia first in this one, Stuart. It would finish three 0 to Germany and probably as routine a victory as we'll uh, as we'll see at this tournament, right? Yes, but there is a great lesson in this from Germany because in the first half, Germany's clearly the better team, mm-hmm. but they're not creating a ton of opportunities. Sure. You know, they don't score. They're not carving Russia up, and Russia's got 10 guys behind the ball. And we're starting to live in an era now where people are very tactically lazy, where they would play that first half, they would come out and play an identical second half, and the game will finish nil-nil, and um, the other team parked the bus. Right. And you tried to play, and they didn't, and your development players, and they're not. And all this nonsense that takes away from the competitive side of sports you know and the, the fact is this is a tournament and if Russia want to sit in then Russia are allowed to sit in and they have zero obligation to keep Germany happy mm-hmm. but what I, what I like about Germany is rather than doing the same thing again they definitely put an emphasis on moving their back three up the field mm-hmm. so Russia's got three centimeters Germany's got three centimeters so you got three v three so they started to be more aggressive in putting center back Matthias Sammer up there and now it's a 4v3 mm-hmm. um, the German back three out on the left and the right getting on the ball and driving forward and dragging and dragging a defender and now it's a, a 4v3 and if you watch the goal the goal actually comes from Russia man for man marking throughout the field and centre back Sammer running forward 40-50 yards Andreas Muller drops into the back line receives possession, turns up field and launches a pass to a through ball because because of the 1v1s everywhere, 
Sammer is now in on goal unless a striker had tracked him, which he obviously had. Mm-hmm. Now, that to me is a clever, clever way to play football. Mm-hmm. But if you don't start creating mismatches and overloads and you don't emphasize putting bodies, more bodies from your team than the opponent does in little specific areas of the field and being good enough to take advantage of it, to me, you didn't earn the right to say you dominated the game. Because part of this game is scoring goals and creating chances. And we're definitely reaching a point where one too many coaches are happy with a nil-nil draw with 65% possession, and that counts the same as a win. When there's a there's a little tinker there that you could have done that you didn't mm-hmm. uh, that might have turned that win into a draw. I think you're spot on, mate. And I think the goal certainly changed the rhythm of the match and that Germany just didn't let up. I mean, they, they saw that as an opportunity to continue carving open Russia. Russia, I think, pretty much accepted that, all right, this is over, right? Whereas they were sort of in it, obviously still at nil-nil. And, yeah. and again, Germany made the change. They'd bring off Bierhoff. Um, they'd bring on Kuntz, I believe, in the last 30 minutes. They'd Struntz on a bit of pace out wide. So you're right, they, they really get after it. But what was your uh, what was your thoughts on Klinsman and his inclusion in this match? Um, I mean, it makes sense. He was coming off a 30-goal season. He's a star player. I think he'd scored a ton in qualifying. I don't have it in front of me and he was suspended for the first game is what it is. So sure. you know, I, I have no issue with Jürgen Klinsmann getting back into the team and he scores the two late goals. So it becomes now an impossible decision to criticise. Sure. Um, I don't think he had a magnificent game, uh, but he scored twice and it's silly to criticise someone who scores twice. Yeah. And I tell you what, the, and the reason I bring it up, Stu, is my, my abiding memory of Klinsmann was this really dynamic forward that would that would run off of other strikers. I almost saw a, a beginning of a, a bit of an evolution in his match that he would almost front the ball up a little bit and not act as a target, but he certainly would come to the ball a little bit more than I remembered him doing previously. But it's for me, Stuart, it's that finish where he turns and, and pings it with the outside of his right foot into the, the far left corner there for the second goal, I believe it was. Um, just absolute quality, even at, even at that part of his career, right? Yeah, it's it's beautiful. It's a great call. So then let's go over to the other match in Group C. Um, you know, after the first match, everyone's thinking probably, I'd, I'd imagine at the time, Czech Republic have been turned over. This is going to be a, another routine win for for Italy. And uh, it certainly was, was anything but. Let's talk, Stu, about the Italy lineup. I mean, we're not going to go through specifics, but there were a number of... Is it un- is it unfair to say strange changes for this one? Um, strange on one level, uh, but remind me of the schedule. I know you'd made an observation about the schedule. Yeah, this this was a, a really interesting one in that Italy basically had um, you know a couple of days break in between. Whereas Czech Republic, obviously, I think two more days break uh, before this game had happened, and Saki. I guess after an experience that he'd reported in uh, the World Cup in 94, uh, the players feeling tired and hadn't rotated the squad enough. I want to say Stu made four or five changes in this match that, again, on the surface, yes, it's against a team that they would have imagined they'd beat, but it's it's players that have played extremely well, right? Kazaragi obviously being, being one of them, right? Definitely. I mean, I'm going to put myself in his shoes. I mean, Kazaragi was 
the player of the rat the first round of games in my eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a combination of you know the two extra days, which would never happen now, so that shows right. in itself how bad an idea that was, right? Um, giving a team two more recovery days than they would get nowadays, it's yeah, I mean the team would go mental if that happened <laughs> nowadays. Right. Um, so I just think he's he's put it through the eyes of fatigue and managing them through a tournament, which he thought was going to last longer than it did for Italy. And yeah, he's probably made them you know made the mistake of watching that first. Czech Republic game and be like, yeah, we'll beat these with the five changes, mm-hmm. which if most people are honest with themselves and they watch that first game, it's it's a calculated risk. Yeah. The odds looked in his favour before kickoff, you know. So let's go through the game real quick. Czech Republic get the early goal, Nedved latches on to some, I guess we could say poor defending, right? They're too far over on one side, they get caught on the weak side, he scores. Chiesa scores a, a, a goal on the counter-attack to get himself back in. And then Babel would score a goal, I believe, just before half time to obviously get himself uh, 2 1 up. And then Stewie, what could only be described as an insane decision from Apollonia and, and got himself sent off. Yeah, yeah, bad one. And he's really, really cost his team with it. Um, yeah, I don't know what to add to that other than <laughs> it was. It was mental. I mean, it's 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 rash. He's obviously on a booking, right? Second booking. It's I think it was Christ in the the Czech half. It wasn't as if yeah. the guy running around goal, right? 60, 70 yards away from his own goal. Uh, just as awful decision that's really cost his team. Even with that said, Stu, there was an element, and I'm sure one of these pods will will really get into it on Saki. But you know, on a surface level here. I think he represents everything that is about the philosophy manager these days. And yes, he's a man down. And yes, there's a slight alteration to the shape, clearly, right? Because they're, they're one player less. They've got to try and firefight. I didn't notice anything in this last 30 minutes, Stu, that suggested we need to do something different in terms of our approach play or our patterns of play. It was almost as if they kept doing the same things. And. I think I've got in front of me here. They had three, sorry, four attacks in the last thirty minutes. That's not, that's not a team that's desperate to score, right? Surely there's balls getting shelled into the box and, and and trying something different, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the one thing I will say to him that changes the history of this game is there is there is a chance here at the end for Casaragi, and wow, that he missed that. Yeah. <laughs> Maldini first has one from a corner that's a, a you know a relatively bad miss, but then the one that drops to Casaragi late here uh, that would have tied the game up and changed the you know certainly changed the outlook pretty significantly going into game three was was awful. Right, and I, th- I think you know the, on the other end of the court, you know, I think what Dusan Urin did here was probably one of the more notable and best coaching jobs of the tournament because you got to think emotionally and psychologically here. Italy's huge favourites. The Czechs have already lost. Um, they've been battered, to be quite honest with you. I know Germany was 2-0, but they're just completely second best. And they're going into a, t- a game with a team coming off the last World Cup final, and if they lose, they're out. So he's got that sure. rallying job to do within the locker room. Uh, but then what else he did that was quite brilliant is he played 3-5-2 v Germany. And in that game, Carol Paborski is a centre forward and he's subbed off at half time. And Pavel Nedved is a left wing back that spends the entire game running back towards his own goal defending. Mm-hmm. 
And he's made two very slight adjustments here. Well, three. First, he's changed the shape to 4-5-1. So he's bulked up defensively a little bit there. He's moved Paborski from centre forward to right wing, where he has done a number on Paolo Maldini, who might well be the greatest left-back of all time. And he's moved Nedved in from the left wing to centre midfield. And he spent the entire first half making these runs forward that are untracked, that are really energetic, really fast. It causes one goal and it causes Italy problems again and again and again. And we all know mentally in a game, if you're getting an opposing midfielder in your box unmarked all game, it, it, it haunts you. Mm-hmm. So... You know, if this is a club manager that's signed two players that have put in a performance like that on debut, everyone's like, money well spent, well done. But what's more impressive to me is it's an international manager who has took the player group that he already had, put the same players in slightly different roles and completely transformed his team. Right. And that is that is what coaching's about to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and I've been guilty of this myself, and we all are at some point when we coach. We need a new recruit. We need a new sign, and we need to, to totally change everything, and then everything will be sold. But what if the players you're already using can change the face of your team by using them a little bit differently? Sure. And I think every team you coach, there's at least one example where that could happen, and it's our job to go find it. But it's a, there's a wonderful lesson in what Urin does here because you can't make the argument he's got better personnel in Italy because he hasn't. You can't make the argument he's got any momentum or confidence because they just got battered. You can't make the argument that there was players missing in the first game that are coming back in for the second game that are going to totally upgrade his team because that's not true either. Right. All he's done is take the hand he already has, shuffle it around a bit and put a much better team out. It's a great point and I think we'll finish on this one that you know, the Czechs, if you know, you read about this tournament and certainly read about this team, are thought of as okay, we'll just camp it in and bang it forward and chase it. This is a team out and albeit right, Italy are, are a man down. They have one less attack than Italy in the match, but they have a higher XG per chance, so they're run, running basically on fifteen percent probability of scoring every time they go forward, whereas Italy had eleven. So, like I said, this is a team that knows how to attack, that is clear how to attack, and they know who they are and what they are. And I think for me, Stuart, that's a that's a perfect chemistry, right, to the, to the points you just made there about how they defend and how they organise themselves and how mentally they're set up to go. And here's another thing. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'm going to guarantee you that their XG, their expected goals in this game, much higher than the expected G, the XG in the first game oh, in order. whereas the actual setup and formation is more defensive oh completely yes yeah, Stu the, the first game oh my god I mean they're not even yeah 0.76 yeah so they've almost that's with the, that's with the front that's with the front two yeah. and in theory wing backs right mm-hmm. and then they went up to what uh, 147 so double that's with a lone striker and a def- you know, a midfield set are probably primarily designed to stifle Italy. But, you know, player performance will always impact the game flow as much as the tactics, mm-hmm. if not far more. Sure. So then putting a bow on in Group C then, obviously we've now got Germany sort of leading the pack and uh, Russia at the bottom. Obviously you've now got the Czechs and Italy duking it out. This Going into this last match, Stu, this makes things a little bit more interesting now with... Uh, with Italy, Germany, and obviously the Czechs taking on the Russians. 
Um, yeah, I mean, this is the biggest shift in landscape in the groups, isn't it? Because all of a sudden, this is we're going to the we go into this game, and Germany's won, Italy's won. Everyone expects that, and we're going to go into the last round with these two deciding who's first and second. All of a sudden, the Italians are in trouble now. Right, the Czechs have got the head to head on them, and a game against Russia, who've lost both games. Meanwhile, Italy have to match the result, and they're looking at Germany. Sure, so totally, totally shifted the landscape. So we finished then today's shoot on Group A. The first match uh, in Group A was Holland against Switzerland. It was finishing a 2-0 victory for the Dutch. Um, it was a better performance from Holland in the sense that they're a bit more uptick in their shots on goal. They would have, you know, strangely very few shots actually on target in the last match, you know, considering they broke 20 attacks in the game. Um the Swiss again are going at these games to sort of massive underdogs certainly with this one what was your what was your thoughts in this game oh Holland were very impressive you know and I I looked at it through an even more educated like after speaking to Ramon about it but that Dutch midfield and the system they play with the 3-4-3 diamond is is very fluid very entertaining very aggressive and uh, the left winger Hoekstra who I know played for Stoke for a little bit after this tournament mm-hmm. Uh, was fantastic and Jordi Cruyff on the other wing had a very very good game scored the first goal um, Bergkamp gets the second with a ridiculously good assist from the goalkeeper um, and I just thought Holland look, I don't think Switzerland looked bad but I do think they were thoroughly beaten by a very good Holland team the other interesting one Stu in this was the substitution of Clarence Seedorf uh, I believe 25 or so minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are we are we naive enough to think this is purely tactical and judging by his body language trudging off the side, I don't think he was buying any of it. What was your what was your thoughts on that? Well, one? there's two there's two sides to this. I mean, the fact is we're 20 years on everyone knows now the deep rift within that Dutch camp. Mm-hmm. Um political, some say racial, but they, you know, there there was deep issues within the Dutch camp. So yes, that played a part in this sub, I would think. It certainly dictated his reaction to the sub. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, he is on a yellow card and two minutes before he's subbed off, he does fly into a tackle on a yellow card. Sure. And after he does that, even he turns around and has a little nervous look at the referee <laughs> and he's relieved when the cards don't come out. So, you know, possibly hitting is spooked by that incident. Uh, which nobody ever mentions, possibly is less forgiving of that incident because whatever's going on, he doesn't like Sadoff. Right. Um, but it's too early to sub a starter for me. And you've kind of helped Switzerland out. Um, strange one. Strange one to do it that early when he's clearly not injured. And obviously it's who he is, right? He's one of the probably one of the best players in the in the squad, right? I mean he's he's went from being an attacking midfielder in the first match to now being the holding player at the bottom of the diamond in the second. Um the the alteration they make is to bring on uh, De Kock, I believe, and then sort of push Blind forward, I guess, into that role whenever, you know, they break forward. You know, I, I noticed Bogard and Reisiger in this match getting a lot wider and a lot further forward that's you know Switzerland setting up with almost like a front three at times they're trying to get round that and, and break that pressure so they, they attack down the wings more like you mentioned through Hoekstra and, and Cruyff I, I almost felt at times though Stu it was, it was even more gung-ho than I, I thought it would be it was both full backs it was both wingers midfield four 
it's pretty much yeah. at the back, right, for for large periods in this game. What yeah. the yeah. what's the the you know looking at obviously now we know how things transpire, but is there an element here of just not balancing everything together, like almost being you know too attacking? Um, it's one of those, isn't it? Like if if they lose, uh, they get battered. Then yes, right. And if they win two 0 like this, then it's expansive and it's attacking and it's tough to deal with you know for every decision we make as a coach there is a consequence to it you know you don't just get to sit back defensively and all of a sudden everything's safe and you've took away from your attack right you don't just get to throw all your defenders forward and be a dangerous team because all of a sudden you're more vulnerable on the counter it's a never-ending tightrope tactically mm-hmm. um and the same thing that works one day will not work another um sure. as you'll see a week a week from this <laughs> when they play England. um but so yeah, I think it's open to that criticism, but we also have to not be silly and realise the exact same system won the Champs League with Ajax. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think that you've got you know, the big calling cards in this game is obviously the uptick in, in former Bear Camp. We didn't have a bad game the first one, but certainly was a lot stronger in this one. Uh, I think Ronald yeah. De Boer for sure is really starting to to cause waves in this game. Is there anyone else, Stewie, in this in this side that you uh, Maybe he didn't remember so well. It's shown a lot bit better. I don't remember the wingers being this good. Mm-hmm. Oxtra, Cruyff, thought they were fantastic. Uh, Bergkamp, probably the best of three in this game. And I think in this game specifically, I don't I don't believe there's a single player for Holland who doesn't have a good game. Right, that's fair. That's fair. So let's talk about Switzerland real quick then. What I mean, did you notice many differences from the, the first match? Or again, are they just dealing with a a completely different, you know, set of Yeah, I think they just found it a lot tougher. I think England were a lot easier to play against. I think England had those 4-4-2 and the, that gap between the lines that they uh, were able to capitalise on and stretch England on the counter. I think England were very vulnerable in, in behind to um, to the runs of Turkey Ilmaz, particularly down the channels, whereas Bogard and Reitziger weren't. You know, this sounds outrageous now. Um given what happens when England play them. But I think player for player at this point, Holland look a lot better than England. Sure. Yeah. And and that's my thing, Stuart. And if this is a, a 20, you know, maybe even slightly less league format, absolutely Holland win this, this league, right? But in a tournament setting, I just think that's the tough bit I always have with teams like Holland is that, it's great. I mean, they're registering again in this one now. They've registered nineteen attacks. But only eight of them are on target. So, you know, strangely, Switzerland's uh, xG per attack is the same as Holland. So they have an equal amount of chance of scoring. Essentially, now again, we know that's not what happened because numbers don't work that way. But I just think they're registering so many attacks, but not enough of them are really, you know are really causing the, the big uptick as, as we'll see obviously in the next match yeah I think that's part of it and I also think you know we all love tactics and we all love conversation about soccer but I mean you're foolish if you don't realise the fact that Edgar Davids is sent home from the tournament two days later yeah. and Sadoff is obviously fuming mm-hmm. at this substitution and now practices and lives in a hotel with his friends uh, clearly there's disillusion with the coaching staff mm-hmm. They're the seeds for a team to fall apart. Yeah, for sure. Um, which they do. Right. Spectacular. Um, so the last game this week, Stu, and of course the biggest one, the one that, you know, going into this tournament everyone was talking about. I'm sure the eyes of everyone in Britain was 
was focusing on right from the draw back in December and that was the Group A match between England and Scotland at the resplendent Wembley Stadium. Um, I can't believe, Stu, that this stadium gets any bad press at all. I've heard a number of people doing this sort of relived period talking about old Wembley looks. I just think it's magnificent when you see it on the on the videos there. What, what are your, your thoughts about the old stadium before we get into the match? I loved it. And I would like everyone to pay attention and listen closely to Ramon Vega talking about Wembley. Right. Because to hear a footballer, I know I love it. You know, played a bit of college in high school and coaches now, and you love it. But to hear someone who played at the tournament mm-hmm. and played multiple years of Premier League um, and play game after game after game at the top level and win the Swiss League and the Scottish League and the English League Cup, and still be as moved by the experience of playing at Wembley as he is, was, I think, fascinating. Right. And as occasions go, Stu, you know, yes, there's been lots of England-Scotland games over the years. They've obviously, at this point in time, had stopped the home internationals because of the teams returning to European competitions and the sort of bigger domestic campaigns, but this is the first time. Was that the, was that the only reason, Ali? <laughs> well, well, let's <laughs> maybe some off the field things perhaps stopped it as well. <laughs> but uh, from a football perspective, this is the first time they'd meet in a competitive match for for some time, certainly if if not ever. Um, and of course, it was finished two 0 to England. Do we just wrap up there, Stewie, and move on to the next one, or should we talk about it a bit more? Yeah, we can talk about it a bit <laughs> if you want, or I can, and you can listen. I, I, I just want to say, Stu, I'd like you take you to forty-one Nevis Avenue, Hamilton. There's myself, my dad, and my papa, all ardent Rangers fans, and my papa and my dad, very big Scotland fans. I really couldn't care either way who won this game. All three of us celebrating as Gascoigne scores, which uh, was, <laughs> was something I'll never forget. But but let's get to the start of this one. You're going to get some hate tweets for that. <laughs> first ma- the first half, rather, um, was a bit of a chess match. There was, you know, in, in, in the report that you put out, you'd highlighted a number of clips of Scotland pinpointing Gascoigne as obviously a creative threat. What was your thoughts on the sort of tactical setup, Stewie, and, and how teams, you know, both teams sort of overlapped each other? Interesting. It was very, very interesting. Scotland lined up the same to my memory as they did in their opener v Holland. They just did a fantastic job with Gascoigne. I know now all we remember is Gascoigne's goal, but for the run of that game, Gascoigne's in trouble under pressure for most of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you go read the report and watch the clips especially during the first half, every time he gets the ball, he's dispossessed um, or he's forced sideways or backwards, which is all you can ask to do with a player that dangerous. Mm -hmm. You know, and a couple of times he's even dispossessed in Scotland, find England out on the counter and create some chances. So they did, they did a great job with Gascoigne, but such is the difficulty of this game. And it's, it's another ratio I have with the criticism of parking the bosses. It's not easy Mm -hmm. because you try and set up defensively and you do well. And then one moment and the game's gone. One moment in ninety minutes, it's it's that it's that easy. So, you know, Gascoigne wins in the end, but I think Craig Brown did a good job, and the Scotland midfield did a good job on keeping a leash on Gascoigne um, for the majority of this game. To the point that I didn't have Gascoigne as man of the match, even though going in, he's the player I remembered from it. I had Steve McManaman causing the most problems when England came out 
after half time and sort of uh, setting the table almost for that uh, that goal by Gascoigne. Um, but there was a good move from Venables too. You know, we talked last week and already today how England came out against Switzerland and they're 4-4-2. And there, there's a clip in the game report of uh, Switzerland where Vogel beats Gazza off the dribble and then he's gone 30, 35 yards to the England penalty area and brought down and claiming a penalty. Uh, and Venables can obviously see that because now we've went 3-5-2, mm-hmm. which is actually 3-1-4-2 because Gareth Southgate is very clearly holding and bolstering that England centre mid, and it works. You know, the extra man wins a lot of sec- second balls for England. And there's a there's a clip in the Scotland report of Gascoigne gets dribbled by again, but this time you met with a sliding challenge from Southgate, which is a very different thing um, to a 30-yard charge in the penalty area. So I thought that was clever from Venables. Um, another interesting thing tactically towards the end of the half is Gazza's going deeper and deeper and deeper so he can get on the ball and turn up field and Southgate ends up going up even higher and being a higher midfielder trying to occupy those Scottish centre mids to free Gazza up, uh, which is an interesting adjustment. Uh, so yeah, I, I enjoyed watching the first half play out. It was like a little, a little chess match. The half-time substitution of Jamie Redknapp coming on could be, I don't know, something that I've completely misremembered or didn't know that it happened, they just didn't take notice at the time. I actually had to double-take who it was with his long, flowing yeah. hair <laughs> coming on for the second half. Um, yeah. What was his impact, you, you, do you think? You get, you get a bigger shock at the end when Sol Campbell <laughs> runs on <laughs> What? It's the right tournament. <laughs> um, so, so his impact then, Stu, obviously you may say the, the shift to to obviously three at the back. There's a lot been made about his inclusion obviously in the midfield. I think for me, yes, I think there's a, a definite shift and there's a bit more of a pivot to how they play, but I think it's the it's the driving force and almost a, a tour de force performance of Gary Neville getting up there on the outside, obviously setting up the the first England goal. This is a something we've seen in in the current Premier League. You know, Sheffield United, this sort of outside of the back three overlapping the wing backs and getting forward. This is certainly what Neville did in, in this particular move, um, and it would certainly continue on for that for that second half. His energy to get forward, I just thought was was spectacular. Yeah, I think it's both sides, you know, and again, we put clips up on the report and we don't mean to keep plugging the report, but you can see this with your own eyes if you're listening. And after after half time, on the first attacks, McManaman gets the ball, Neville flies around him. Um, shout out to Gary, I don't ever remember you being that fast if you're listening. <laughs> um, and because Neville flies around McManaman and freezes the Scottish fullback, McManaman now drives inside completely unopposed and gets a shot off. Mm-hmm. And then not long after the same thing again, but this time Neville's in and it's a it's a great cross and it's a goal. But Southgate also does it. You know, it's it's impressive to Southgate that he's so good in centre mid and he moves back into back three and seamlessly he's so good at centre back. But he also with without the effect of Neville on this day gets forward and changes Scotland's shape and pins them back in um, by coming up that left wing in possession. So Scotland would have. I don't want to say a purple patch, Stu, because really we're talking a couple of attacks here, but there's a header from Jury at the back post. It obviously hit the post. With There was another attack, I seem to remember, from McAllister at the box. And then there's obviously the move. Uh, McCall gets to the right wing, puts a ball into the front post area. 
and Adams would dive in and give away the penalty. Is that an error of judgment? Is that good Scotland play? What what do you think led up to to that penalty happening? Good movement from Jury. Right. You know, like, yes, it's an error every time you give a penalty away, but the fact is the speed that Jury is out of Adams' eyeline, comes into Adams' eyeline, gets in front of him, um, I think the speed puts the pressure on Adams and it's it's a foul. You can't not challenge him um, and the timing of the run wins the penalty. I think Jury plays well. I think Gary McAllister was fantastic, one of the better players on both teams throughout the game. Mm-hmm. So obviously the penalty would be would be saved by Seaman and assisted by Yuri Geller, I believe. Uh, <laughs> if, if, uh, if that would float your boat, uh, news stories at the time suggesting that. Um, it wasn't long after this, Drew. I, I may have even been in the same sort of play, if not the next one that would come in, that the, the ball would work down the left-hand side, a great through ball from Anderton on the left wing, would find Gascoigne, exposes Hendry, and yeah, that goal we talked about earlier, probably one of the best goals of the tournament. Probably one of the yeah. most memorable goals for me, I think, watching football, just because I was stunned as to what I'd saw. And for something that I think on a surface level looks so simple, but this is elite level skill from a elite level footballer, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the top five goals in the history of any European championship. You know, I like when I think of European Championship goals, I think of this Gaza goal. I probably think of the Suga chip, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe even the Pabalski chip from this tournament later on. Um, and Van Basten's volley in the final. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's right up there and it's definitely the best celebration. Yeah. <laughs> I could have mentioned that, right? But I did this cheer to, uh, to finish off. And I think really at that stage, the stuffing had been knocked out of Scotland and, and England had gone to to secure the win. There's a lot been made of this game, shoes being the sort of precursor to England's form and, and really pushed them forward. I think, to be honest with you, mate, it's a bit of a, a no-win situation for England in that, you know, if they won it, okay, you're expected to win. And anything other than a win would have been a disaster. So, you know, they had to do what they had to do and, and, and that's what they did. Knowing what we know now about the tournament, do you, do you think this was a, a, a genuine springboard or is it just a a solid victory in what was a, a fairly sort of tough match? I think it's a solid victory uh, because I think we jump ahead when we remember history and I think going into this Holland game, England were nervous. Right. You know, there was a draw would have got both teams through and every single England fan at the time would have took that draw. Right. Obviously, that's not what happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... And I think England had never beat Holland going in, in any tournament going into that game. I think they've been coming off five consecutive games. England didn't have a win in. So I think this is just a, a very emotional win because it's Scotland, but I don't think it's any major turning point yet. Amazingly, this would, you know, despite these two results, Stuart, going into the last game, um, both Scotland and Switzerland could still finish second. Obviously, Holland would... Uh, you know, would get themselves six points. Uh, sorry, four points rather. England would obviously be also in four points. So it really was on a bit of an knife edge getting this last uh, this last game. Of, sorry, round the yeah. It was interesting because Scotland and Switzerland, one team would have to win and then hope for the corresponding result, and that being England had beat Scotland, so England had heads ahead. 
So if Scotland won, they'd need a Dutch loss. And on the other way around, Switzerland had lost to the Dutch head-to-head. So if they won, they'd need an England loss. So head-to-head tiebreaker didn't count against them and it went to goal difference. So everyone was alive. Um, and Scotland and Switzerland just needed to come up with a win. A draw would eliminate them both. Um, and then English and Dutch draw would eliminate them both. But if one of them won um, and one of the other two lost, it was game on. So it was still alive going into game three for all teams. Yeah. So to finish today's episode then, Stu, let's go through what you and I think are the best players of the round and the best teams of the round. Let's start off with the players then, Stu. Who would be your pick for player of the round? Karol Poborski. Um Mentioned earlier about the little... You know, adjustment of him and Nedved changing how the uh, checks looked. Uh, he set up the first goal. He's in behind all game. He's a real attacking threat, and he's doing again, doing it all against hands down one of the best three left backs ever to play the sport in Paolo Maldini. My player around Stu would be Davos Sukar, and it's an interesting one. I had to look this up sort of prior to the tournament to look at his career. This was still at a point where he was still at Sevilla. Um, he had hadn't basically finished a season without scoring 20 goals to this point so again prolific striker he's still moving at elite club level category which is mental I think the amount of goals he's scored and the level he's at but I think for me in this round after coming off the back of such a disappointing first match I think by his own standards for sure missing the two big chances I think this was a bit of retribution for him and he certainly didn't disappoint, did he, with, uh, with the two efforts that you mentioned earlier, the one from distance and, and obviously the chip. I think really the other thing for me in this match from Sukar is, it's his approach play. I, I, again, had it in my head. This is a penalty box forward that you have to serve and you need to put him in. He ran channels, he crossed the ball, he, he works, he grafts. It's a complete footballer for me and, and uh, yeah. something I just didn't remember him, didn't remember him being. Yeah, no, he was great. Okay, then team of the round, sure, performance of the round rather, what would you what would you go for? Checks. Hit the double up and be boring, but to be the sixteenth ranked team by bookmakers odds going in, to lose to Germany, to be massive underdogs to Italy, to be right at the brink of elimination, and to perform like that was fantastic. Yeah, no, it's a good one. I, I think for sure it was impressive and, and I think what we mentioned earlier tactically, I think we're starting to see a, a real mature performance and maybe changing this narrative that it was a bit of a fluke that they got so far in this tournament, which it never is, right? There's always a, a reason why they do so well. Um, you know what? I'm going to go for Germany, Stewie. I, um, again, had no memory of this German team being as good having watched it first time round and watching these games back now I just I just love the way they play they're, they're the complete powerhouse they're, they are horrible people uh, which I love they <laughs> they create they create attacking opportunities they defend well um, yeah this is this is a team Stewie that I think at the time a lot of people really wanted to see get turned over <laughs> especially being in England yeah. And, and they're proving everyone wrong so far um, and again the fact Klinsman's come back in almost seamlessly banging in goals is uh, yeah it's a real testament to their quality I think there's a very strange narrative um, flying around that this Germany team was not that good 
You know, they win this tournament, which in itself is one thing. Matthias Sammer, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, was named best player in the world this year. And then again, correct me if I'm wrong, the following year, Borussia Dortmund beat Juventus in the Champions League final. So this whole written belief and spoken myth that this German football was quote-unquote not that good at the time has zero basis in reality and what actually happened for me. Yeah, totally. Okay, folks, that's round two in the bag. So as always, Stewie, it's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ali. And of course, folks, you can check out all of our work over at RetroFootballAnalysis.com and be sure to drop us a like on our Facebook page and give us a follow over at our Twitter handle, at AnalysisRetro. Retro.